0: Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a Tent Talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome back to another edition of Tent Talks, the part of my Tent Theology Podcast where I get to sit down and talk with people that I think are doing some of the work of reimagining our social and political imagination. And to help me do that is the Reverend Dr. Sharon Prentiss. She's the Intercultural Mission Enabler and Dean of BAME Affairs for the Church of England in Birmingham, which is a whole lot of things that we're going to get her to explain. Before that, she was previously a tutor at my old theology college, St. Malitus College, where Sharon and I had offices next to each other. She was named the Mary C Cole Scholar by the Department of Health for her contribution to faith and health. She is a co-opted member of the Church of England's Committee for Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns. She's the author or the editor of Every Tribe, and she is a visiting or honorary fellow at the University of Birmingham. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. This is—I don't—you might be the most, the most uh, high-powered or qualified person that we've got. Now, first question, Sharon: Reverend Doctor or Doctor Reverend? Which uh, way do I put that? Oh, I was going to say Sharon would be great. I'm, I'm, okay, <laughs> No, no, you earned those letters, and they're important. So, is it is it Reverend Doctor or Doctor Reverend? How do it's how am I reverend, to say
1: doctor, that?
0: reverend Doctor. Yeah. So, what came first, the doctorate or the reverend?
1: The doctorate did.
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: the doctorate did. I was teaching at Huddersfield. I was actually teaching um, sociology and community development studies. Uh, okay. well. And then, you know, people were saying to me, you really ought to think about becoming ordained because of what you're saying and what you do and your passions. Uh, okay. And so that began a, a kind of a long journey into,
0: um,
1: yeah, ordination.
0: Ta- tell us about this. So so you were working, was it sociology, anthropology, politics? Yeah, I,
1: I did both. I mean, I grew right. up very interested in culture and the way that people interacted with each other. And um was, you know, sort of I was an inner city kid and around me were twenty different nationalities. So I learnt Russian. Uh, so Yagavarunia Manoga Paruski. and I had Just for fun. Just just <laughs> Well, just for fun,
0: but I actually learnt it at my secondary school as well. That is so great. What I city can... is this that that you get to learn Russian in? This Where was Leeds. In? This was Leeds. Amazing. Amazing. Leeds. Okay.
1: In the sixties, you know, you know, Cold War was still going on, um, but I had folks around me who were from India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Poland and the Caribbean, and so for me, living amongst that wonderful mix of culture was yeah. very seminal and was very formative for me. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, we bonded over food. Food was the most important thing, okay. and so I learned a lot about my peers and community um and so it was natural for me to gravitate into studying more about them and how people interacted with each other and some of the issues
0: okay living in society and then you were doing the work you were teaching or you were on the academic staff at Huddersfield University
1: yes yes
0: and so, why did somebody go ah you know what we need this Russian speaking lead sociologist she needs to go into the church as a priest what was what was the connection there what How did you get the tap on the shoulder or was there a tap on the shoulder? How did it work? So um, I have been married for over 30 years to a a wonderful guy
1: called Calvert. And Calvert was actually, we come through the black majority church. It's a very long story. And um, Calvert was a pastor in a black majority church for a number of years. And we started to feel a second generation black British That God was calling us somewhere, we didn't know where. And we happened to end up in the Anglican church in Coventry. At that time, we'd moved to Coventry. Um, And Calvert went on to train in the Church of England. Um, And at that time, I was doing studying, so I did a master's in anthropology, I did a bit of teaching. I worked for voluntary organisations. So that's where my community development background came in. And I taught okay. uh, in community development and did that for nearly 20 years um, as we moved from parish to parish. And all that time I was preaching and teaching and then had heard consistently over the years people say, you should really think about becoming ordained and ignored it for very many years. And then all of a sudden, I think I was praying one night and really felt that God say to me, um, so when are you going to do this thing? Um, Okay. I sort of nudged Calvert and said, I don't know, but I really have this sense that I need to explore this. And that's where I started uh, discerning ministry.
0: And it was the, the, coming into the Anglican uh, church was the the home for you, was it? What, What? of all the different denominations and possibilities out there, what, what was it about the Anglicans that you thought you were called to serve?
1: Well, it was accidental, Stephen, and because okay. quite unknown to me, we when we had left the Black Majority Church, and we, it wasn't acrimonious. We just felt that God was calling us somewhere else. Um, and when we we just happened to trip across an Anglican church in the middle of Coventry, mm-hmm. and we just listened to it was it was we were driving through Coventry, listened to. the the music coming from this place, um, decided to go in and explore out of curiosity and ended up staying there for seven years um, and was exposed to the whole range of what it is to be Anglican, from Book of Common Prayer to charismatic services to, you know, ministry in the city of Coventry. And so for me, the whole thing was about exposure to what it means to be an Anglican. But unbeknownst to me, my family originate from Nevis, which is in the Caribbean, Nevis St. Kitts. And my family had been Anglicans since 1643. I didn't know that. And
0: you didn't even know that? Okay.
1: So it was really surreal to find that out. But the thing what really grabbed me was going back to Nevis, because I'd gone back several times, and finding out that we had a close association with this church, Ooh. as you know, as obviously as, as slaves and then indentured slaves. And then over the course of time, it, as a colonial okay. uh, it sort of protectorate as well. Okay. Um, and then when my mother came to England... That's when the break happens. So it's really, really surreal.
0: So I've come back home. <laughs> now, listeners to this program will uh, will know the name Azariah France Williams, and I saw you on his. He did an online book launch. Mm. Now, his family also comes from Nevis. Is what's the connection? Do you are you connected to his family? Is that a coincidence or so? Apparently,
1: we're distant cousins, okay. which um, you know, most people, is a tiny island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A two-island nation state, um, yeah. and, and I think the population's around eight to 10,000, so right. inevitably.
0: They yeah, because it's so like, small. Like if, if you'd said, oh, we, we both came from Jamaica or Haiti or something, I'd be like, of course you don't know each other, but Nevis is so small that I would have absolutely. thought, it's not a crazy thing to ask if there's a connection, and there is one, okay. Yeah. Distant distant cousins. Yes, apparently. So, yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of the sociology, so what happens when you come into the Church of England as a priest, but from an anthropology, sociology, community organizing background or community politics, how has that influenced your, how you navigate the the structures that are, is the C of E?
1: Mm-hmm. I think for me, it was actually appreciating that we are a community. So this whole okay. you know, idea of looking at not just how the individual um, interacts with their faith, but how that faith is expressed through the body of a community mm-hmm. and understanding that there are social structures that all groups navigate. Um, and so for me, the issue of power was a big thing. Um, and how that power is mediated through the organization. And how does our faith speak to that power? And how does faith um, be able to um, express a way of belief in Jesus Christ that um, kind of turns that upside down on its head? So the paradoxical nature of power in faith, for me, is, is a very elemental way of being. So what I mean by that is, you know, this whole thing about being called to be a servant, being called to give up our sense of power and our sense of entitlement to serve others. The church is both an institution and a body of people. And sometimes the institutional ways of being replicate
0: certain power structures. Well, yes. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about this. Like, okay, so my particular interest is, nationalism as anybody who listens to this knows i mean is it even possible to have a church of england that is not replicating nationalism is that possible i mean can you even have a how do you navigate those waters because i don't think you're a nationalist (laughs) i'm gonna go out on a limb and guess you're probably not a british national party member But, but is it even possible to have a church of england that isn't nationalist and and how do we what do we do about constructing some spaces within that?
1: You know, I think that's a really, really interesting question in that it kind of reflects the complexities of our embeddedness
0: um, okay. as a state right.
1: church. Yeah. yeah, and and I think where we become complicit in some of the the issues and the challenges is when we don't acknowledge that and we don't acknowledge that, that our ways of being. Um, that they are conflictual um that we replicate them unthinkingly and actually what we do is we can adopt oppressive ways of being so as far as i'm concerned creating spaces where we talk about that is really important because part of combating it or even challenging it you know uh-huh. some people might argue that we're so deeply embedded that it's very hard to kind of separate everything out right. But the ways of challenging some of that stuff is by being completely explicit and saying let's recognize a our origins be the yeah. way that we operate and be the way that we exclude people
0: um, and that's part of the issue for me what are some of the concrete examples you have of uh, can you give us a a concrete expression of when you say oh we tell you said we have narratives that that we we blindly follow what what would some of those be
1: Uh, if i'm really honest um and and i think there is something about having conversations of grace courageous conversations i call them so Mm -hmm. if we look at our history and the way that we have favored people to be in the church so at one point People from a certain background, mm-hmm. um, uh, gender, um, you know, they were seen to be the materials for being leaders in the church. It only has become a recent realization that that's, that, that's mad to do that. Why? Because society is changing around us. We are engaging in all sorts of areas. We can't speak with validity in those areas if we don't reflect people. And, and what I tend to find is lots of people shrugging their shoulders and saying, this is horrific that, you know, after all these years, the Church of England is still ostensibly white and middle class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are shocked at that. And yet we're not doing radical things to change it. We're not doing radical things enough to change that status mm-hmm. quo. So, I mean, that's one example, sort of classism as well as, you know, the sort of the gender issue, I think we have had to grapple with that as women mm-hmm. have come into the church and become bishops. But I
0: think there are other areas that we're still grappling with. When did you, I'm not sure when you became ordained, were you, uh, what, what, which generation of, of women uh, leaders were you in? Were you sort of breaking the ice or had other people broken the ice for you? So I, I stand on the shoulders of those wonderful women that so, so it will be about eight years ago that I. Oh, okay. There. Oh, right. You're a baby priest. Oh, wow. I am still, still new and shiny. Oh, very good. Okay. <laughs> I did say in the introduction that we shared offices next to each other, but to be honest, we were more like ships passing in the night because I was on my way out of St. Melitus just as you were, uh, kind of coming in, and I don't we we sort of talked friendly in the corridor kind of thing, but I don't actually know you. So this is really fun for me. Uh, yeah. What listeners don't know is I'm just making friends on this pod. I just use this podcast as an excuse to make friends <laughs> in a time of lockdown. This is the best way to do it. Uh, so what have you, I mean, what experiences have you had when you're you, I know that you've been right. You, you know, you get asked to write reports or to speak to some of this kind of language. You wrote a book about telling the story of various saints uh, who are not you deliberately chose it was it 20 saints how many different people did you choose that were not from european background so we well, most of the, the folks
1: in the book so around 13 13,
0: 13 okay
1: we uh, were coming from a, a variety of backgrounds but i actually yeah. It started in a very organic way, like most books do, Stephen, like your books do, out of just interest and in people saying, well, I wonder, I wonder, are there saints of colour? I mean, it was a fundamental question about, you know, these great exemplars of the faith. And although people could quote people like St. Augustine and Tertullian, and, you know, the great fathers of the faith, Um It was very, it was harder to talk about much more recent contemporaries. And and we started, when we sat down and started to think about it, there were a number of people who might not be called saints, but who were venerated uh, across the church, whether it be Orthodox or Catholic or uh, Protestant traditions. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we not just had a biography of them, but people spoke about how important they were to them how they impacted their story yeah. impacted them yeah. people of color spoke about that
0: so it was a story you're you're telling you're telling the church stories about itself right that they didn't know but it's still it's a little bit like you didn't know your family was anglican <laughs> absolutely and that uh, you needed somebody else to tell you your own story like by the way you do realize this is your story this isn't some new The Anglicanism wasn't this alien thing introduced to your life. They were like, no, you've always been Anglican. You just didn't know it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. But don't you find that, though, Stephen, in theology, we like, you know, we only see one perspective. There are so many perspectives, like global perspectives, that we don't hear the stories. And they're so important to inform our understanding.
0: So go on, tell us, tell us which of these saints that you that you had to edit or tell their story. Which one was the one that was brought the most delight to you?
1: Oh gosh, that's no, that's really hard because there's oh, so
0: many. Um
1: uh I know which is not a saint, but Pauline Murray, okay. um, who is recognised by the Episcopal Church in America. Uh, Paulie Murray was a, a A lawyer she started off as a lawyer and became a priest she was one of the first women priests in America but she was also very much an activist at heart Mm -hmm. um, and you know managed to combine the two and she wrote poetry as well and I remember reading some of her poetry Mm -hmm. and it resonating with me as a black woman who was also navigating this boundary between, you know, being passionate about seeing the kingdom enacted in the wider context, as well as, you know, this message of hope of being a part of delivering this message of hope. And I'm thinking, and here's a person that's navigated this terrain before and right. speaks so eloquently about this. Um, and so her story captivated me. Um, but there are other people like, of course, there's Augustine, St. Augustine, you know, Berber from North Africa and yeah. his struggles and yeah. very real human struggles as well. And, you know, his mother, Monica, as well. Um, and people like Abba Moses, Black Moses, again. Um, and, you know, the sort of he had to deal with. He came from a background where he was a robber. And, you know, um, the sort of stereotypes around him uh, being from Africa and being a part of bandits and then had this conversion uh, uh, as a monk, but still had to live with the sort of uh, the ways that the other monks regarded him. And it actually provoked him quite a bit as well, because they couldn't believe that this man could change Um, and yet became one of the most respected abbots um, at the time and and actually died in a way that um, you know gave his life for others so those stories were just
0: so inspirational they had to be told I mean how how have you found in your work opening up some of these spaces for I don't know for what are we talking here education story education sounds so dull doesn't it it sounds so worthy when what you're doing is just telling stories which are which are inspiring and fun but How have you found your ability to to open up some of these spaces? Uh, What kind of projects have you undertaken that that help bring these stories out to the the people in their own church?
1: So what we've said is that we're creating space for courageous conversations. Okay. So, you know, lots of our cultures, lots of our ways of being is around storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And our theology comes out of that as well, our connections to what we believe and who we are, Come yeah. that, so it's it's about being intentional, about listening to stories as well as telling stories. So, um, so for instance, we um, we had a book group that looked at, um, and it's not, I didn't start this; one of my colleagues did. Looked at uh, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility most of your uh, listeners would be uh, acquainted with the sort of premise of that book mm. uh, particularly at this time mm. and we wanted to explore what does that mean for us here and now um and so it was about creating a space around a meal to talk about those things and mm-hmm. to listen to one another so mm-hmm. that was one way of doing it i think another uh, another way is by using the arts um Uh, particularly young people are very engaged in the arts as an expression Uh so using the cathedral for a focal point of where people could come together and express who they are, their identity and then leaving space afterwards for people to talk and to ask questions and to be inquisitive and essentially make relationships was was really important uh, for that
0: Are you doing this As a priest, I mean, are you wearing your collar at the time and everything? Or or are you kind of hiding your churchiness? Or are you bringing the churchiness directly into these spaces that you're making?
1: Well, it's sometimes wearing a priest, uh, being a collar, wearing a collar, being a collar.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) there's existential problems going on here. You are a collar, Sharon.
1: I'm a collar. You are Um, a priest. I, I think for me, it has been around discerning about where... That makes its greater impact, and sometimes right. that's about, you know, that's about being quite honest and saying, "I do this not in a hierarchical way. I do this um, alongside others, and and let's work together, um, let's worship together, let's be together." And then sometimes I realize my impact is, you know, by being a priest and by confounding some of the stereotypes of that too. Mm-hmm. So ostensibly my role in in Birmingham is around inclusion and representation and how do we intentionally work towards being an intercultural community in our church. So that's part of my role. And then the other part of my role is about being a critical friend. Um, It's about saying, does this represent the kingdom of heaven? Is this uh, as... We read in scripture as we understand from our theological tradition, is this the way that we are called to be at this time in this place? So it's just by asking those questions and mm-hmm. opening up conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little bit of a, I, I like to call myself a kind of a conduit for these various discussions, but it's meant to be deliberately, um, I, I'd say, provocative with a small
0: p. How's the reception been? When, you, I mean, I'm envisioning a bunch of sort of old white men in a boardroom and you, and then you're saying, is this what Jesus would want us to do right now? I mean, am I being crazy to imagine this or is that basically what your life is like sometimes? Sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> and what sometimes. happens then? What happens when all these white men wearing their bishops robes look at you? And you say, um, and to, be fair, this. to be
1: fair, I think there is now a sort of gradual dawning that we have to be different. Yes. Um, Initially I think, you know, with a with some of my colleagues, um, not just Bishop, but there was that tumbleweed effect, you know, across the plane, the tumbleweed, when it was like, so so what does this mean? Because right. it it's such a it's it's a, such a, a different way of thinking about things. Because I'd had such an opportunity to work with organizations such as the Salvation Army and sort of Other faith based organizations and had my feet in community, it was about, okay, then, so how do we as a community start to think this through? Mm -hmm. We realize, yes, we have to be aware of the governance issues and to keep the church going, but there's also something about authentically being church. What does authentically being church look like? Mm -hmm. This relational self sacrificial way of being that is also about you know espousing social justice and being quite intentional mm-hmm. um, and i think for uh, i think he's always been there in the church but i think more and more that's coming to the fore
0: i mean you talked about representation what do you mean by that or what yeah what do you mean by representation and then i have a follow-up question <laughs> first of all <laughs>
1: I want to enter into some debate with you. because no, no,
0: no debate. No debate.
1: No debate. I can tell you just from my experience, yeah. representation means a church that embraces everybody okay. fundamentally. Uh, uh, and a church that not just embraces everybody within a sort of context of the congregation, but right through the, the structure, yeah. if you want to call it, and reflected in its worship, in its way of being, in its theology, in its mission yeah, um, and intentionally does
0: that. So what is the, where is the onus then? The onus is on, I, I'm trying to think what your day might be. Do you go up to somebody intentionally and say, I think you should consider going into the priesthood because you represent in your social class or your skin color or your accent, more of the kinds of people that we want to see represented. Is that how you approach it? Or are you more in the uh, in the boardrooms and the theology department saying we need to find ways to make it easier for a more diverse range of people to come through the ranks? What's how do, where do you put your focus? Is it on recruiting individuals or is it on changing structures?
1: It's on a bit of everything. OK, um, I'm, I'm one of the rare creatures in that I, there, there aren't many posts like mine. OK. Um, And I straddle a number of things. So um, I am part of a senior team Mm -hmm. around the bishop that speaks into strategy and governance. Uh, And then I'm also part of the sort of pragmatic delivery aspect. Mm -hmm. So intercultural mission is my remit. So what does does an intercultural church look like? What does an intercultural diocese look like? Mm What is the intercultural um, thread that should be going through our strategic orientation, uh, our ways of being uh, as, as the people of God together? So it covers all those areas and I'm, I'm teaching on that as well. And so in a way, it's a very innovative way of being. Um, it's exciting, but it's also challenging at the same time, because it means that people, as people, we come with our, assumptions don't we and our stereotypes and thinking it's very prescriptive if we did this this and this then that that and that will happen but actually it's about being open to the spirit of god working through this and then i remind us by saying things like so what was the early church like i wonder yeah (laughs) what do what that look like right now
0: (laughs) all right here's 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 a scenario to it perfect oh it's it's completely made up it's just it's just purely made up not a single lick of truth here sharon okay imagine if you will somebody who's sitting uh, at a theology college boardroom and they're all white people and they all desperately legitimately want to see more black ladies coming up through the ranks like we want more black women priests we would like that please so and i have okay it's not theoretical i've been in these rooms I've been in all white rooms where we're trying to do this. And so I can guarantee every single heart in the room is pro black women priests. Um, but we put on a course and not a single black woman applies. So now what do we do? <laughs> what are we doing wrong? Like how, how would you, if you could redesign theology education tomorrow, if you could do it, what would you do?
1: Well, there's two aspects to that. I was saying how, how serious are you about this? Okay, You know, putting on courses is never enough because what you're assuming is that people will come to you. So if your intent is to ensure that this is representative, diverse, uh, you know, and, and inclusive, because that's, you know, mm-hmm. the inclusive bit is around how do we make this happen? Then what are your proactive actions mm. around ensuring this will happen? who are you targeting who what other the sort of pathways are you enabling to happen to ensure that this what are the radical activities are you prepared to do to ensure that mm-hmm. this happens so i'd be putting the onus back on think very seriously about what this means yeah because it isn't that people don't want to be part of it is they have no confidence yeah. in the structures that enable this to happen. They're very Mm -hmm. passive structures. And we're saying, well, we're doing everything that we can do. And I usually say, are you really? Are you doing everything? And then I'd say to to them, okay, in terms of your content, your curricula, does it reflect the people that you're hoping to Mm -hmm. support, attract, affirm, and encourage? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, then why are you surprised that you're not getting and then there's something about modeling it as well. One of the, the issues is that we've tried and we can't do that. And saying, well, actually, there are creative ways of modeling this. Mm-hmm. Modeling it. You can actually do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for us in Birmingham, I I was a team of one, and now I'm a team of three. Mm-hmm. And that was by going out and purposely doing activities that would enable um, a small cluster of people to to, uh, to actually come together. So a team of three paid, but actually I have a bigger team of about 40 and an even bigger team of what I call um, people who are really engaged and really want to see this happen. Mm-hmm. Where are the spheres of influence that you could be a part of yeah. to enable this transformation to occur? Yeah.
0: I- I'm gonna go back to my theology question because I mean, you and I have both worked as theological educators, you still are. Mm-hmm. And what what needs what would you love to see happen tomorrow for any anybody? Let's pretend I put you in a room. There's 30 people in the room. They're all training for ordination, and I say, Sharon, <laughs> preach from fullness. Teach out of your fullness. What have you got? Go. What would you teach them? The, the the argument that all theology is contextual. Okay. So contextual theology
1: is really important. I'd be saying about the global theologies that you know we have a curriculum, yes, and we have to be careful because there's so much that we have to put into it but are we showing are oh, we ensuring that 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 curriculum is comprehensive uh-huh. are we ensuring that there are a myriad of voices that are able to be part of uh-huh. of this uh-huh. discussion and debate and working working this out so I, I would be looking at some of the the global theologies and ensuring that they're part i mean there's be a call to what's called decolonize the curriculum and I think people say, decolonize the curriculum. It's already decolonized. We assume our curricula are neutral. Right. But when we look at who we are teaching in a theological college, who's, European, white male, there's nothing wrong. It's just, you know, systematics. So I'm not, not a dead German,
0: guys. <laughs>
1: but let's, let's, let's widen the yeah. bounty. Out there yeah. and let's let's create context where we can talk and, and be open to different perspectives. And actually it's so invigorating. Yeah. Um, and what it does is it kind of broadens and invites other people to be a part of our theological reflections and discussions. Mm-hmm. By keeping it in a very particular sphere, we exclude a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is a passion that I have to include as many people as possible. Um, and people are included when they see themselves, when they hear themselves. Right. When some theology speaks directly to their experience as well.
0: I mean, who have you, who could you recommend? I'm just, I'm just putting you on the spot right now. But what, <laughs> what theological voices <laughs> would you love to see uh, have a more prominent place on the syllabus?
1: So, I mean, I, I, as, as a, a woman of colour, uh, I'm, mean, you know, I'm sort of the womanist sort of perspectives, the people such as Katie Cannon and Musa Duba and, you know, um, the sort of uh, whole load of people that immediately have just gone out of my head.
0: I put you on but, the spot. Um, I did put you on the spot. <laughs> but,
1: um, I'm just trying to think of, um, I, at the moment i am what i teach on in terms of intercultural theology Mm -hmm. so um the sort of stuff that started at birmingham university um a few years ago uh around what what does that mean which was about yeah it was mostly about interfaith um and sort of ecumenicalism mm. but as it moved more to okay a much more missional orientation about what does you know church in terms of our ecclesiology mm-hmm. i think it's grace so intercultural ministry by grace g sun kim and jan Aldredge clanton um absolutely fantastic which i have there and i recommend and another one on my table you can see which is the living mission interculturally, and this is by Anthony Gittins, um, Roman Catholic, um, Jesse Witt. Uh, Again, those two in terms of practical stuff, um, but there's lots of other stuff which is which is not on my table at the moment. Oh, actually, Hope in the Hollow, Hope in the Holler. by a, a womanist theology by A. Elaine Brown Crawford. Okay, so this is just a few, but you know, South Asian yeah. as well theologies and uh, um, uh, sort of post-colonial biblical criticism by Sugi uh, Ratharaja, I think he's called. Um, But there's just so much stuff out there that I think is just so vital.
0: I mean, can you, I've got, I have a professor of intercultural studies right in front of me, which is why I'm going to ask, what's the difference between, you know, just having a diverse group of people in a building and intercultural Ministry. what does the intercultural mean? What do you have to to do to be intercultural, as opposed to simply a, a diverse range of people sitting in the audience?
1: I mean, I think the first thing is the inter bit, yeah. the interdependence bit, the realization that power is sort of equally shared, right? And therefore, how can we enable others mm-hmm. without othering? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this whole idea of how do we love one another in a way that can be seen to be powerfully visible mm-hmm. and how does that come across in terms of our worship? Um, we in Birmingham call it the three L's. So we say in terms of our leadership, so it's visually, mm-hmm. you know, representative, mm-hmm. our liturgy, so in terms of our worship and our prayers and our litany, mm-hmm. And our language, and what we mean by language is not just our expressive language, so our mother tongues, but in our cultural languages, our cultural ways of being, that comes into play when we meet together Mm. to be the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we use the three L's and then we say deliberately that we are intentional about it. Yeah we are intercultural that we are intergenerational and that we are inclusive so those are just mm-hmm. sort of very basic ways of of saying that this is a way of being that we have entered in yeah to thinkingly
0: yeah rather yeah. than unthinking i'm beginning to notice that you're very intentional about it. like it's very much you say it very clearly you name the elephant in the room as it were and you say we are going to do this and this is why we're going to do it you don't just it's not something you're just secretly doing in the back room and hoping will trickle down you're actually creating spaces in which you very specifically say these things and i'm i am finding this a very interesting way of acting yeah. i mean is it generally a positive experience what happens when you face conflict how do you resolve the conflict when you try and be deliberately intercultural and intergenerational and inclusive
1: I usually say first thing, because we talk a lot about this, so we do lots of uh, um, workshops mm. or opportunities to discuss what this means. And I usually say first off that being an intercultural church intentionally is about being messy church. It's a messy way of being. It isn't easy because it's opening ourselves up to to misunderstanding. It's opening mm-hmm. ourselves up to uh, acknowledging our own favorite ways of doing things our own proclivities towards stuff and it means actually that means discomfort yeah acknowledging that discomfort is is about trying to combat it in the first place yeah. trying to deal with that so it's not about reaching a consensus in a way that we normally think of consensus. Mm. It's about reaching a place where we can live together and learn to give and take and to work through the dis-ease to a place where we reach a place where we can coexist in an interdependent way. So it's not trying to shy away from conflict, Um but it's not the sort of intentional, aggressive, combative way of doing things. Or the guilt stuff. The other thing I say, Stephen, very clearly is that guilt's not from God. Right, right. Conviction is. Okay. But guilt paralyzes us. Okay. And we don't, we don't move forward yeah. with guilt. Yeah, yeah. But if we're convicted to, to, to work towards transformation, then that's the powerful thing. And, you know, and while acknowledging that this is not easy um and that's why we call it
0: courageous conversations can you tell me you mentioned a very interesting phrase you said including the other without othering them can you tell me what you mean by that and have i have i <laughs> and how will i know when i've othered people have i othered you today and tell me like let me hit me come on
1: <laughs> i mean we know for me it's about asking having these honest conversations so you know instance um somebody Oh, yeah, somebody said to me the other day they called me they described me as afro Caribbean okay. right which you know at one point in time wouldn't have mattered, but actually it's we moved a long way since then, and I said, well, actually we call i am called if i'm british African Caribbean because it which it, it is it's a movement. In terms of how we now look at things, um, and I was at um, a seminar actually at one of our TEIs, and, um, and what's a TEI and this, for our listeners? Sorry, yes, that's right, a theological education institute, a college, uh, theological ha, colleges. I
0: caught you out, Sharon, in your elitist institutional <laughs> language. I've caught you. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Quite anyway, you're right. <laughs>
1: It's actually saying, no, I don't understand that. Can you explain? (laughs) But I was at at this place the other day and this wonderful lady, and she was wonderful, said, "Um, I am as a non-white person. And I just looked at her and I thought, right, I'm really going to have to have a conversation about this." And now I waited until the end because I think it was really important to do that. Mm -hmm um you know not stop the flow and, the, and this is where i think grace is really important and i went to her afterwards and i said i don't consider myself a non-white person yeah. Be- you would not consider yourself a non-male person yeah. so you know using those terms actually alienate and you probably didn't realize it i mean she was extremely apologetic um and then she actually rectified it herself in front of her peers afterwards yeah. The issue was, if we don't have the difficult conversations, then things won't
0: change. Yeah, right, right. So othering is when you create you create a box that the other person now represents or is in.
1: Yes. Um, I didn't get back to explain, but othering is actually assuming that the normative values mm. are ours. Right. And, and when I say ours, so the normative values are generally white. Yeah yeah the sort of white yeah and othering is measuring anything else gotcha. else okay. against that. Okay. yeah so you know so everything else yeah. is measured against yeah. that yeah. um and yeah. so you are othered you are seen as uh, you yeah. know it ranges from being exotic to unusual right not necessarily regarded in the same way as one would regard yeah. oneself. So the white
0: space is the is the so-called neutral space and everything else is a is an exotic <laughs> addition. Yeah. Right. Is of yeah, yeah.
1: You know. And and I and I one of the ways that I get to convey this across is I say, you know, the the Greek when you're looking at when Jesus calls us to love one another. Mm-hmm. You know, we often talk about loving others, don't we? But loving one another implies uh, a bond and an, hmm. an interdependency that we sometimes lose the sight of when we translate that um, and so if we're going to love one another as ourselves which is essentially what it's alluding to that part of that self-love is loving other people equally without any those usual caveats around difference and othering as one well.
0: which as we come into land reminds me look how consummate a professional i am sharon that i'm going to tie this up to your book i'm going to tie this up to every tribe stories of diverse saints serving a diverse world because when you tell these stories you're not telling the stories of other people you're telling the story of our church our movement our people right and uh, and it isn't a it isn't a case of we're interconnected or we're You know the story of the people in your book every tribe is the story of my faith it's not the story of some exotic person out there you know and i'm the neutral one so yeah i really love this thank you so much for coming on this tent theology podcast thank you for explaining and also demonstrating what it is to actually create spaces that have a new social political imagination to them um Sharon, is there anywhere else that if people want to hear more of you or see more of you, do you have any places that they can they can look you up? Or is there a place they can go and study with you? What where would you like to direct people to? Well, I think first and
1: foremost to Church of England Birmingham's website. And um we we're hoping to do some more things around Unconscious bias, uh, intercultural awareness is what we call it, but around peace and reconciliation, because fundamental to this is about becoming places of peace, mm. not just for ourselves, but for other people. Um, and we're kind of deepening our understanding of what that means. So, yes, the website.
0: Reverend Dr. Sharon Prentice, thank you so much for sharing your time. It's a real honor to have you on this program. Go well. well.
1: Thank you for asking me. <laughs> and you
0: too. We'll talk soon, I'm sure. Bye. Bye.
1: To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.